I believe it's on page 1073, you'll find John 17, which is our text for this morning. We do encourage you, as I always say, to have a copy of God's Word before you, that you might follow along in its reading and in the preaching of His Word. We're going to begin our study this morning in this wonderful chapter, John 17, a chapter in the Bible where we see so much of our Savior and his heart for his people. The last time we were together in this study as we began, I wanted to set the stage, as it were, by reminding one another about what the Bible says about Jesus and what he's doing right now as we sit here this morning, unceasingly doing. So at any moment, we can say this is what Jesus is doing right now. He is interceding for his people. Hebrews 7.25 says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. Remember, he's after Melchizedek, not Levi, because he continues forever. Consequently, because of this, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The last time we sang the great hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, and Charles Wesley captured it very well. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. This verse, of course, establishes the fact of his intercession. It is without mistake that we can say Jesus intercedes for each of us individually and continually while we are here, that he is really doing that right now for me and you if you are drawing near to God through him. That's the only stipulation for all of those who draw near to God through Christ. He becomes for us a faithful high priest ever liver, ever living to intercede for us. Now, after that sermon, several ladies from the church, as they left the church, mentioned that this is one of the great themes of the book you're studying. And I think I mentioned it last time as well. That book, of course, is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's a wonderful book based on his own words, Jesus' own words, his own self-description of himself. He is gentle and lowly. He invites us to come to him. He is a faithful savior. Well, in that very book, this is what Mr. Ortland writes as he considers that text in Hebrews. Think of it this way, he says. Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but has dissipated now that he is in heaven. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy, that took him all the way to the cross, but now his heart has cooled down, settling back once more into a kindly indifference. His heart is drawn to his people now as ever it was in his incarnate state. And the present manifestation of his heart for his people is his constant interceding on their behalf. He is aware of our infirmities, our weaknesses, because he has taken our nature to whom he has joined himself as the divine 
He has joined himself to our human nature, now glorified at the right hand of the Father. He has taken that nature into the presence of God the Father, into heaven itself. And from there, because he knows us, he prays for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. And so the question we turn ourselves to this morning in a very broad way is, what does he pray for us? What is it that he prays? And so we are beginning this study, and as I always do, I try to do if it allows, but we're going to read the whole prayer, verse 1 through 26. I will ask you to stand. I think it's important that we stand and stretch our legs as we prepare to hear God's word. I said to the session this morning, listen, if the amen that we just did after the reading of God's word, after those two readings spills over into this, that's fine. It's a good thing to give our amen anytime we hear God's inerrant, infallible word. So this is his word, and these are the words of our Savior as recorded for us in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, and these that, know, that you have sent me, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thus far the reading of God's word. Amen. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, our Father, for this, your word. It is precious to us, for we have heard the words of our Savior, as he with great intimacy drew near to his Father in heaven, and we, as it were, were able to listen and to hear his prayer for us, which continues even to this day. Bless us, encourage us, strengthen us. Through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. They are commonly called uh, prayer warriors. You've heard the term before. They can be found in every church. I can tell you the names, but I won't, of some that I believe are here in our church. Now, this is some not elite special force team that stealthily moves from one secret mission to another, taking down the bad guys and then returning to their ordinary lives as accountants or homemakers and teachers. These are often ordinary people, followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have been given, I believe, a great burden to pray for God's people and to do so tirelessly and faithfully. They are typically unknown behind the scenes, somewhat like the famous story that you might have heard of Charles Spurgeon, who when people came to the Metropolitan Tabernacle would take the people on a tour down to the basement, open the door of a room and show what he described to them as the powerhouse of this church, revealing a room filled with people on their knees, making constant intercession for him and for the faithful preaching of God's word. I know that I have such people in my own life. I've had them all throughout my life in the past and in the present as well. There are people in this church that I know pray for me daily and faithfully and let me know. And there are people in other places that continue to pray for me. And Pastor Fisher has the same people who pray for him because they know that when we stand to deliver, to preach God's word, that is where the attacks will come. That is where Satan will seek to steal away those things. And so they pray and they have a, a burden to pray. This is more than an ordinary sort of call that we talk about when we say it's really important for us to pray. This is a burden, I believe, given by God, and many are faithful to do it. When I would visit Janet Middleton, now with the Lord, she assured me that every single day she prayed for me and that her prayers were that I would be faithful to his word and to the preaching of it as I stood in the pulpit week after week. 
she again is now with the Lord. I have to this day a friend who lives in Pennsylvania in the first church that I served in in the early 1990s, who every time we talk, which is very infrequently, undoubtedly he will say to me, Pastor Ted, I want to remind you that you're my Thursday prayer guy. Every single Thursday, he prays for me without fail. And as he does that, I thought, well, I, I want to look back and think more consciously of my Thursdays <laughs> and the difficult Thursdays that I might have had in my life. And I want to be more faithful to remember that my friend is praying for me and did pray for me on that day that I would know God's grace and strength. You may, you may have people like that in your life who pray for you in that way. Or you may be one sitting here this morning, unbeknownst to anyone, to whom the Lord has given a great burden of prayer. And you're faithful in it. You're constant in it as you pray for his church, as you pray for the ministry of his word, both here and throughout the world. You would be a prayer warrior. And they are great gifts to the church. There is no doubt in my mind, as people often ask this question, there's no doubt that prayer moves God. Now, we know what that means. We don't change God's mind by prayer, etc. But God, through his spirit, burdens his people to pray. And God, in response to all of that and in his sovereignty, moves in response to those prayers to accomplish great things for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. And yet, as wonderful and encouraging as that is, and it is, and we ought not to ever diminish the reality of that, there is one who lives to make intercession for us, who never tires, who never fails, who never, ever forgets to pray. One who knows our deepest needs, who knows better than any our deepest struggles, one who is familiar with all of our griefs, all of our pains, one who is there right now before his Father's throne and our Father's throne, making intercession for us with infallible knowledge and understanding. And there is no one on earth like that. No matter how faithful our prayer warriors in our lives are, there is no one like that who prays tirelessly, never fails, never, ever forgets, and who has this infallible knowledge and understanding as to what it is that we really need. This I said before you this morning, in a beginning way, is our praying Savior. Now, some of you know and have been with us for many years, I am not going to rush through this chapter. We could preach a sermon on the whole chapter and be done. I'm telling you, I'm not rushing through. Bear with me patiently. I'm trying to understand it myself first, to live it out myself, to be encouraged myself, because I know how deeply I need what this chapter teaches me. So I'm not going to rush through. This morning, we're going to lay a beginning, a foundation. Next time we're together, we're going to continue to lay that foundation in other ways. We're going to look at it from the perspective of those diagnostic questions, which we always use and are very wise to use when you read the Bible anytime. Asking who, what, where, how, and why before we ever enter into the text itself and seek to understand the, the uniqueness of this chapter in the whole Bible. 
And I believe, having studied it for some time now, that it is and stands apart as perhaps one of the most, if not the most, unique chapters in all of the Bible. And there's a lot in the Bible that we could say is unique, special. You know, think of Romans, the whole of the book of Romans, right? But this chapter, because it is a window into the mind of our Savior and his prayers for us, individually and corporately, I think it marks it as a most unique chapter. So much so that there have been those in the past who have felt that when we are dealing with such a chapter like this, what we might say is sacred, set apart, different, if you will, all of the Bible is sacred in that sense, but, but this even more so set apart in its uniqueness because it is the very opening, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, into the, our Lord's own heart, that the right and only thing that we can do with this prayer is to do what we just did and read it. And there have been those who have said in the past, for this reason, one dare not preach on John 17. You'll ruin it, is the argument. You'll ruin it. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to ruin it. And I trust God will not allow me to ruin it. But we have read it. We need to understand it. It seems, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say to me, that this view that we not preach it because it is such sacred ground is a mistake. For I would argue, he writes, that our Lord would never have uttered this prayer audibly, out loud, unless he had intended that we should hear it and that we should be able to study it, and above all, that we should be able to grasp what it teaches us. And so we're going to make this beginning this morning, noting three things about the first few words of this chapter. And those words are in verse 1, and they are very direct. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said... Three things to take away from those words as we make a beginning into this great chapter. First, his teaching and his prayer and the relationship between the two of them. It is recorded this way by the authors under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he wants us to see something very clearly. And the thing that he wants us to see is that his prayer is inseparably connected to his teaching. You cannot divide him, much as we say you cannot divide the person of Christ with his two natures. You can't separate the human and divine. You can't confuse them. But they are two distinct natures in one person. So with respect to this, his teaching and his prayer for us go side by side and hand by hand. It is the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth. But it follows, one writer says, the greatest sermon that was ever preached on earth. And that sermon would be from chapters 14 through 16. If you've ever read through those chapters, if you have a Bible that likes to put the words of Jesus in red, I believe 14 through 16 is all red. They're all the words of Jesus. They are, in a sense, a sermon preached to his own disciples. It's not a large group that he's speaking to. It's his intimate 12 disciples. Judas will eventually leave this, but it's those disciples 
the very ones that he will then pray for, who hear this amazing, perhaps the greatest sermon that was ever preached on the earth. Now, we're not going to do it this morning, but I would encourage you as you think about learning what John 17 is about, that you might go back and look at John 14 through 16, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of strength in the midst of the battle with the world, that we're not of the world, that Christ has overcome the world, the, the promises that he speaks in all of this, especially again of that coming Holy Spirit, the turning of their sorrow to joy, the union that we have with Jesus Christ in John 15, a central teaching of the Bible, that we are united as the branches to the vine, so we are united to Jesus Christ. Our life is drawn from him, much like the vine draws its life, or the branch draws its life from the vine. You look at all of those teachings, wonderful, incredible teachings, Jesus being the only way to God, the only source of eternal life. You go through all of it, 14 through 16, and you get to chapter 17, and what does he pray about? Everything he's just taught, he turns, if you will, into a prayer. A prayer for his people whose central theme, and we'll say this over and over again, and I believe this is true, his central theme of that prayer, and what he prays for you and I right now is, Father, keep them. Keep them, keep them, keep them. Till the end, and bring them safely home. That's his prayer in a, in a summary way. Now, I'm not saying close your Bibles, that's it, we're done. Because what he prays, how he prays, and, and how he interweaves throughout that prayer, the teachings of John 14 through 16, is utterly amazing. And that's what we're going to learn as we go through this. His teaching is intimately related to this prayer. We will not understand that prayer. And so the encouragement is this. As we go through this prayer, read John 14 through 16. Make it a part of your devotional life and reading over the course of this series. And you will see again and again and again that all he prays about and all he's concerned about is everything he just taught to his disciples. And so he teaches and then he says to his father, take that word that you have given to me. And by the Spirit, press it into their hearts and minds that they might know that by my power, as it was by your power, Father, they are kept. They're kept safe. They're preserved. That's a wonderful model. I, I don't believe in the end that the reason for this prayer is to give us a model of how to pray. And yet there are many aspects of a model that we are to follow. And one of them is this idea that our prayers ought to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. Many of you I know have, have told me over the years how you have begun to do that. You read the Bible devotionally, you, you read the word of God, and then slowly but surely you intend very intentionally that your prayers would reflect more and more the very truth of God's word. There's no better way to pray as you take those words and you begin to sort of put them side by side with the needs that we have and the needs of others. We align the teaching of God's word with our prayer life. There's no better way to make sure, if you will, putting it this way, 
that your prayers will be heard by God than to take his word and to pray it back to him and to claim the promises that he himself has given to us in his word. And so this first point, and it's very important to see this in this prayer, his teaching and his prayer are united, inseparable, as we continue to study it together. Number two is probably the easiest point in all of this, and that is, I've already said it, he is intentionally speaking aloud. He is speaking out loud. It's two words. He is speaking. He spoke. One word in the Greek. But as we come to see this, we see its importance that he actually spoke this out loud. A question that came last week after our meeting in the evening where we essentially suspended our normal evening worship, and I know many have responded favorably to this, that we, we have sort of a question and answer based on the sermon that morning. The focus was on Pastor Fisher's sermon as he begins the series in the, uh, the, the pastoral epistles, uh, Timothy and Titus. Uh, but there was a question that was sent to me, forwarded from someone, I forget who it was, but someone asked the question about this very idea. And, and the question goes something like this. Since we know that Jesus often went away to pray in private, how is it that we have this prayer and the very words that he spoke? Well, the simple answer is because in God's providence, and Jesus, I think with great intention, spoke this prayer out loud. For what purpose? So that his disciples would hear him praying for them, and so that in his providence, this prayer might be forever preserved for the benefit of his people down through the ages. He did not merely pray to God as he had on many, many occasions, but he prayed audibly to God and his disciples heard him. Thus, the prayer was preserved. And it's why I could read it to you this morning. And it's why you, over the course of your Christian life, have actually read the words that he said. We don't need them in red. I'm not a fan of that. But they're his words. They're actually what he spoke. And so that ought to impact our lives, that God in some way and for our good preserved this prayer where we gain a unique perspective and insight into the heart of our Savior and what it is that he prays for us, which I should remind you should be in the same way we said about models and patterns should be the pattern of our prayer as we pray for others, as we pray for our children, pray for those who are just coming to faith in Jesus Christ, pray for those who do not know him, that God would make him known. As we pray for growth in each other's lives, let this prayer be in that sense a model because Jesus is praying that. He's praying it right now for us. I read a statement as I was studying that struck me I'm reading a lot of statements that strike me as I read different commentaries and sermons from years gone by and contemporary as I study through this passage. And I wonder if I actually believe this statement. Maybe I'll have to come back at the end of our study and ask it again to you and to myself, but the statement is this, very brief. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this statement. If we had nothing but John 17... 
that would be surely more than enough to sustain us. I thought, well, I thought that was the book of Romans, actually. Uh, or I thought it was this, the, the sort of desert island sort of scenario that we're all asked, what book would you take? What chapter would you take? What verse would you take? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, no, if, if all we had, if God had only chosen to reveal this audible prayer that Jesus spoke out loud and preserved by the Spirit throughout history, if that's all we had, would that be enough to sustain you in your Christian life? I know where he's going because I, I know and read through and studied the prayer. I, I know that there's a lot to be said for that. And, and there's a part of me that says, yeah, that's all I need to know. That in my deepest struggles, my darkest days, to read the words of my Savior praying for me probably is all I need to know. I'm glad I have more, but he might be right. And we'll see when we're done if he is. Thirdly, I want to show you the uniqueness of a praying Savior. We saw this last time together as we studied Hebrews 7, and hopefully you notice the connection. He is able to save uttermost those who draw near to God through him since or because he ever lives to make intercession for them. There's a connection there. He's able to save to the uttermost. I think the main purpose of that uttermost is to the very end, to the final day, to bring them safely home. He's able to do that because he uniquely never ceases to pray for us. So listen, here's what he means. You and I will stand before the judgment seat of God, the throne of God on that day, glorious as it will be. And the only reason we will be able to stand there is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is because to the right of the Father, there is a Savior who has forever in all of our lives been praying for us to bring us to that day and that moment. That is what it means to be saved to the uttermost, to the final end, to be safely home. And as I thought about this, I thought, boy, that is so unique. In all of the world's religions of which Christianity is ours, of course, and we believe the right revelation from God of what is to be believed, of what is true. But if you think of all the major religions of the world, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, there's not one of them that has this praying Savior, not one of them. All of their leaders, all of their founders, all of those who are credited with sort of the start or beginning of that, that religion, which we would claim from our perspective as Christians is a false religion. All of those religions, those perspectives of looking at life, none of them have a praying Savior. None of them have a Savior who is ever living, None of them have a Savior who is ever living to make intercession for us. It's amazing. It's incredible, but it's true. The only one, the only revelation that we have from God himself, the one true God, is that we do have a Savior who not only died for us and shed his blood, the passive obedience of Jesus, he was willing to die but the active obedience of Jesus, not only living a righteous life, but now actively interceding for all of us who come to God through him. All of those leaders have died. There's no teaching in any of them that I'm aware of that those leaders have an ongoing ministry, except in their writings that were left behind. 
There's no leader that I'm aware of in any false religion that is said to be interceding for their followers. There's no praying savior in those religions, but there is in ours. And it's not only here in John 17. Of over 650 prayers recorded in the Bible, this is by far the longest one. Of at least the 38 times that we read of Jesus praying in the New Testament, this is by far the one that most fully captures how and what our Savior is praying for me and for you. In fact, Jesus' ministry, according to one gospel writer, I think it's Luke more clearly than any other, was marked by prayer. There are several passages in Luke. I won't give you them all. I'll just quote the one that was part of our reading this morning. We see that his life was patterned after a regular time and devotion to prayer. In Luke chapter 5, as we're told about great crowds gathering around Jesus to heal, uh, to hear him and to be healed of all of their diseases, Luke tells us, but he would often, and the new uh, or the ESV doesn't have the word often, but it's, it's properly understood here. He would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. He does it all throughout Luke. He just keeps pulling away. The disciples, in fact, get very frustrated with him because they can't find him. Because he rises early and he goes to pray. And even as we come to the end of his ministry, the cross itself and everything that's related to it, he takes the language of the Psalms, which are prayers, and he prays them. The very things the psalmist cried out in their conflict, in their trials, Jesus takes them and in fulfillment of those words, he makes them his own. Psalm 22 read earlier, Psalm 69, another messianic psalm, they're prayers that he takes the words, he makes them his own, and he prays them to his father. He was in his earthly ministry, a savior who prayed. Now we're going to talk about that because some of you may be thinking this. Well, if he was God, the second person of the Trinity, why did he need to pray? Well, you need to understand, and we'll talk about this next time, who he was in his person, two natures together in one person, not divided, not confused, but each expressing the fullness of that nature throughout his earthly ministry. And one of the ways, and I think we see both here in John 17, one of the ways we see that is in how in his human nature as mediator and in his divine nature as the eternal son of God, he prays to the father. And we're going to look at that and understand that more. But it is unique in all of the world religions. Christianity alone, and for lots of other reasons, stands above and beyond all of those other religions because of Christ and because of who he is and what he did. And so as we end this morning with just this view of these first few words of this chapter, I want you to behold your praying Savior. His prayer was rooted in his teaching, inseparable from it. His prayer preserved for us because he spoke it out loud. And a prayer that reflects a unique ministry that he alone, that he alone has and continues in this day and to this day, to exercise on our behalf. Well, why is this, in the end, so important for us? 
I can tell you personally, as I said Friday night, and I'll continue to say throughout this study, it has become increasingly important to me to know that my Savior prays for me. I am encouraged when I hear my friends and people in our church say, I pray for you every day, Pastor. Every single day without fail, I pray for you. That is an encouragement, a great encouragement that we do not take as pastors lightly. But I have come to understand in my own life that there is nothing that compares to my Savior praying for me. In the midst of the trials and the sufferings of this world, I desperately need to know that he prays now and always for me, that, that he will never cease, never cease. I, I mentioned last week as we talked together, and I, I said to Pastor Fisher, well, to all of you, that as he said he would describe the theme of his, his sermon series in, um, in the books of the pastoral epistles, and it's escaping a bit, but it's essentially to press on, to hold fast, I think he said to hold fast to the truth, once for all delivered to the saints, right? To hold fast to that. I, I said, you know, the reason we're able to hold fast to that is not because we're really strong. <laughs> it's actually because we're very weak and we have a Savior who is really strong and he's praying for us. And the only reason we're going to hold fast is because he prayed us safely home. That's it. There's no other reason except that. And to know that, to understand it, to believe it, to be comforted by it has been some of my greatest joys, even in the earliest part of this study. We need to consciously remember it, to be constantly aware in the most difficult times of our lives, to have it be the first thought that comes to our minds when we're struggling, when we're facing that trial that we never welcomed, that we never wanted, that time of suffering that we said, I don't think I can make it through, when we're facing all of that, you need to remember, and so do I, that you have a Savior who is actually right now praying for you and who knows what you're going through. He actually knows it because his knowledge is infallible. It's without uh, error. One writer says, in fact, it was Louis Burkhoff said, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us. Even when we were negligent in our prayer life and that he is presenting to the father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. A friend from this congregation, dear friend, sent me this yesterday. I think she's beginning to process all of this with me as well. It's brief and it's powerful. It's a familiar quote from Robert Murray McShane. And he writes this, If I could hear, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, so if I could be a disciple, sitting next to Jesus and hear him say that, these words, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Isn't that wonderful? If I could hear it, and we're, we're so weak that way, we need to hear it, prove it to me. Well, here's the proof right here. In your Bibles, it may all be read. 
In my Bible, it's not. But in the words of Jesus, and he's praying for you, and distance makes no difference. It is becoming for me an anchor for my soul because it unites me in my mind and in my heart to Christ. And as we continue to study, I trust it will be an anchor for your soul as well. In whatever tumult and struggles that life has for you now or in the future, to know that Jesus is a praying Savior is one of the greatest blessings God's people have ever known. It was true for John Knox. You may know the story, but I was struck by the story. In August 1572, Knox had returned to his beloved Edinburgh, but that fall he became ill. He was struck with pneumonia and he was bedridden. As the weeks of November passed, his condition worsened, and then on November 24, 1572, he was surrounded by his wife, Margaret, and by Richard Bannatine, his longtime friend. They were reading scriptures to Knox, and at one point he looked at Margaret, his wife, and he said, Go, go, where I cast my first anchor. She immediately knew what he was asking for and talking about. And she turned in her Bible to John 17. She began reading from that text when Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As Margaret continued to read that chapter, John Knox turned to her and said, what a comfort this chapter is. He would then, as she continued to read, die in her presence and in the presence of his praying Savior. It is a comfort, and you need it as much as I do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the true comfort of your word and the knowledge that we have a praying, ever-living Savior who even now intercedes at your right hand on our behalf, who knows what we need most and best, and who prays ceaselessly for that, that according to your will it might be granted, and that we might be led all along the way and brought safely home. We pray that you would guide and direct us, we pray, in all of these things for your own glory and for the glory of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.